0: So, ladies and gentlemen, we've finally made it. This is finally a Wharf episode. Wharf's a real character. Whew, thought we'd never get there. (laughs) Funnily enough, apparently, the creators actually had the same problem that I've been pointing out this whole time. Now, I've been doing it in good fun. I understand that television production is a big thing, and suddenly inserting a brand new character into episodes that you've already bought, scripted, and already started the teleplay on is not an easy thing to do. I get that. I would rather we have Worf just kind of be in the background than they, like, shove him in in a place where he doesn't fit, character-wise. So, I'm okay that they took this long to finally get to an episode which was Worf-centric. And, in fact, it's a good fit. Worf, Kor, and Dax is actually a great triad, all things considered. And, just to be completely blunt, and I know I I probably speak for at least a few people when I say seeing John Colico's back as Kor was just really great. Um, It was a real treat to see him return and you know continue to portray the role of Kor, which, as I mentioned, he'll actually be doing even after this point as well. We'll be seeing him again in the future. We also learned a couple of interesting tidbits about him, including the fact that he's apparently not super popular in political circles, which makes sense, and that he has a specific bone to pick with Gowron. Now, to my knowledge, we never learned the specifics of his beef with Gowron. But it wouldn't surprise me given that Galron tends to play very stark politics. In other words, you're, if you're with him, then he will take good care of you. If you're against him, he will do everything in his power to discredit you and disgrace you. It wouldn't actually surprise me if, politically speaking, Kor is completely out of favor because of Galron. We actually learn a little bit more about this in the future. He still has, obviously, a reputation for being the Dahar master, but... Actual political influence, actual strength amongst the Empire, pretty much non-existent. So that would be my personal guess on the matter. So uh, there's this great bit where, you know, they're all talking about his tale, and it's like, this is just a stupid, ridiculous tale. And then O'Brien says something that I actually enjoyed. Who cares? He tells it well. Which, of course, a lot of that is on John Colicos, like I just said. But it's true, he does tell the story well. He's a good orator, basically. And that's actually something interesting. I've talked many, many times over the years about the difference between a story and a tale. And there's usually two things that a tale is. It's either just supposed to be this grand tale. In other words, it doesn't have to or isn't even supposed to make sense because it's just the the tale itself that matters. Or it's a morality tale. It's supposed to get across a point or a purpose. Uh, We'll actually be discussing that concept later on in Deep Space Nine, believe it or not. Excuse me. So, I'm with it. I do enjoy his tellings of it, but it is funny. I find myself personally wondering, how does he tell the tale of Errand of Mercy? Off the, t- off the top of my head, right? And there we were, Kirk and I, the smiles within smiles organians, distanced off to the side as we lunged one with another. I pulled off my knife, but it was knocked from my hand by the beaded brow of Kirk's great bust or burst, or... <laughs> I'm not good at this, at least not off the top of my head, but, you know, just, ah, and then Kirk and I wrestled to the ground and shook with the fervor and strength of the Great Federation and Klingon armada combined, you know. I just like to think that that's how he tells that particular one, as opposed to, we tried to kill each other, but then our weapons got hot. <laughs> you know, it loses a little bit in the, in the... when you switch from story to a tale, or vice versa. So Worf is, of course, incredibly nervous about meeting Kor. For two reasons. First, he's been disgraced in the Empire again. This is not the first time he's had to deal with that problem. Although at least it's not a discommendation, which is basically as bad as it can get. And second of all, he idolizes Kor. Of course Worf does, of all people. Worf, as I've said before, is probably one of the really true, real Klingons by virtue of the fact that he had the virtue of not actually being born in Klingon society. The Son of Moog effect, as I've been trying to get more and more to to, to calling that, because it's going to come up a lot in all these Worf-centric episodes in TNG and in DS9. So the Son of Moog effect, for those of you who haven't heard me say it before, is when someone is basically lives up to the ideal of a culture or a race or a group or whatever because they've never actually been a part of that group, and as a consequence, they don't understand that the reality doesn't really line up with their ideal. So they come across as you know more of a pure member of that group, even though they actually aren't a realistic depiction of it. Make sense? And that is just Worf in a nutshell. He's a true Klingon because he never had to deal with Klingon politics, Klingon fake honor or the realities of Klingon existence and how messed up it can be. So, obviously, someone like Worf would venerate someone like Kor, who was a legend. And obviously, he'd be a little bit disappointed by actually meeting him. But, you know, at least he still manages several things. There's this great bit much further in where Dax is like, he's going to get killed. And Worf says, no, with total certainty, no, he has the sword. And then he lunges in to help him. It's It's, it's a nice little tidbit. But anyways, so then Korra's like, ah, yes, the the traitor, the pariah, the lowest of the low. Good to meet you. (laughs) You know, anyone who's against the High Council in Gowron is good in my book. Once again, getting back to that political thing I mentioned earlier. So Worf, of course, is entranced by the idea of this. Worf is someone who, there's two aspects to his character that I think they really did a good job with in Deep Space Nine, but were emphasized even as far back as TNG. Worf is a romantic, I don't mean as in, I don't mean as in his relationships with women, although he is also a, a romantic in that sense. But, I mean, he's a romantic. He get, becomes entranced by the ideas of, you know, all these concepts and these great glorious battles and, and, the, and the honor of, of trying to serve your people. He's a romantic, right? Like, we romanticize things. And he also has a very big faith Focus. This is something that will be very important going, uh, going forward as we continue to discuss more of it. But even in this episode, that's something they hammer in very clearly. So the idea of being able to find something like the Sword of Calus, that's incredible to him. It has been argued that there is no real-life equivalent to this. Although, you could argue that back and forth, and it would probably vary depending on which particular point in human history you're talking about. But it could be argued that right now there is nothing that really is the equivalent of the sort of k for Klingons that we have here on Real Life for Humans. It's just that big of a deal. Now... There's this great bit. I like the fact that Kor brought this to Dax to verify it. Wish he'd gone a little bit more direct, rather than telling everyone in every bar on the way there about it, but, you know, whatever. Um, and then the Lethian attacks! Six minute, nine second t- teaser. I think this is one of the longest teasers we've ever had. Not the longest, but it's certainly up there. I also have to admit that Odo is really not impressing me. Unless, maybe Odo's, well, no, Odo was in the, in the episode, wasn't he? Like, right at the beginning, and it's like, it's like a one-off. Where the hell's security? This Lethian just wanders up and attacks, I guess he's not really a VIP, but a citizen. Really? You're just gonna let that happen? Okay, whatever. So, this is when we find out about the Herc. There's actually several references to the Herc in this episode. There are only two episodes ever of Star Trek where the Herc are even referenced. This episode and a brief one-off reference in Enterprise Season 4. That's it. Now, I mention that because the Herc as well as the Vek-Veklar, which is someone else I've talked about recently in a TNG episode, Devils Do, both of those are aspects of Klingon mythos that are never really fleshed out in the show itself. I know you guys are probably tired of me bringing up STO, but all I'm going to say is that I like what STO did with both the Feklar and the Herc. It was a logical way to conclude it. It made a lot of sense. And it added a lot of power for anybody who recognized the name. I I freely admit, I actually was like, wait a minute, the Herc? It was pretty much my reaction, because I'm pretty sure I did it live on stream. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I was pretty jazzed about that. But anyways, I do like the idea of these Herc being, you know... Basically, space Mongols. Now, that's not how they're portrayed in STO. But the idea is they move in, they take, and then they leave. Now, I know the Mongols actually conquered territory as well, but you get what I mean. Rather than being a specific empire or organization or nation or what kingdom or whatever, it's more about roving bands who move together, take, and then use that as their method of prosperity, right? Raiders, in other words. Although I hate to use that term because nowadays raiders is usually associated with other fictional concepts, like you know, say Fallout, for example. But anyways, and of course, Cisco points out the obvious: if the Federation personnel were willing to were part of this program and assisted in restoring the Sword of Kaelas, that would score major political points with the Klingon Empire, which at this point they're still, I guess, technically in a cold war with. It's, it's kind of hard to define the exact status of the Klingon Empire and the Federation as, as of this point in time. But they certainly are not allies, and conflict is actually happening between the two. so make that what you will. So Kor, this is interesting. Note that Kor, before they leave, he tells them, well, stop, stop. Savor the moment. Kor, Dax, and Worf. And I point that out because Kor, at almost every step up to this point, and up to a certain point, is really big on sharing the glory. In fact, one of the things I find most touching is the moment where he said he had a dream that Kang Koro, uh, uh, Kodos? Kang Kor, Uh, hang on. (laughs) I can't remember the third Klingon because I'm a moron. Uh... That's nah, not going to take. Uh, Koloth, Koloth, King, Koloth, and Kor. We're all standing side by side, and we're all ready to go for this. And I get the really strong impression that Kor in many ways, is lonely. In, in In the most traditional sense of the word, that he has outlived so many of his contemporaries and so many of his friends by what is effectively circumstance. He hasn't outlived Dax because she's a trill, and that's it. That's all he's got left. I like to think that Core is the kind of person who wants to share in that glory. Like, I have a saying. Okay, this is one of my own quotes: "Good food is best shared." Right. In other words, there, there's 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 that having a nice meal, and then there's sharing a nice meal with someone who's a friend or a family member or even a stranger. Right. It's a different thing, and I feel like Core has the same mentality. Yeah, glory's nice and all. But glory shared, oh, that's where it's really at. And I mention that because it helps to establish something. I suppose now is as good as time is to talk about this as any. Over the many years of analyzing fiction, I've come to notice that there's a, a semi-recurring trend for things that don't line up. I don't mean like plot holes. What I mean is when the creators say, "Well, I wanted to do A," and but. All the, the fans are looking at, well, but this is B, right? And what's funniest to me is most people just sort of automatically lean that way in most cases. Now, sometimes it's because of interpretation. Dukat is a good example of interpretation. Uh, we know a lot of the writers disagreed with each other about Gul Dukat. We know that a lot of fans have interpreted him and analyzed him over the years since this show came out. And we know his character took a he took an extremely stark sudden right turn at a certain point in the show. So there's a lot of interpretation there. That's not so much a a miscommunication between the creators and the the fans so much as it is just, it was a nice multi-dimensional dynamic thing that they never flat down said, this is who this character is. But I've seen this many times where the creators have said, this is who this character is, and everyone's like, well, no, it isn't. I'm sure you guys can think of several examples of that right off the top of your head. In my experience... There's usually two reasons this happens. The first is the obvious, just screw-ups. You know, it, it wasn't properly conveyed, and therefore it was a screw-up. The end. But the second is more interesting to me, because the second is when the person involved, in this case it would most specifically be Hans Beimler, or Beimler, I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that, and uh, Rene Ochevarria, both insisted... That there was no external power, no trap, no mental effect, no nothing whatsoever on the Sword of Kalos. And yet, that's not what's shown in the episode, to be blunt. And virtually everyone who has seen this episode, especially everyone I've talked to personally, has automatically said, yeah, of course there's some kind of external influence. In fact, I remember when I watched this episode first with Mom, remember we'd started watching DS9 by this point, um, by the end of Season 3, and we were watching this, and she's like, oh no, and I'm like, yeah... Looks like it was a trap after all, and she's like, Yeah, they're gonna tear each other apart. They better get rid of that stupid sword. And I'm like, Yeah, tell me about it. Because it was just such an automatic thing. It wasn't like we looked at, you know, a it wasn't like we looked at a black poker chip here and said, Well, this is obviously purple. It was something that was shown as that thing, as if it was some external influence. And this is the second category, at least this is my interpretation of this particular event, because they said, This is what it is. But the actors, the director, and the specific teleplay didn't seem to agree with that. And so, in other words, to bear this down as simply as I possibly can, we were shown one thing and are being told something else. Apparently, and this 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 is a long-standing thing. Uh, as I said earlier, Renee Echeverria and Hans, I'm not going to try again, both had, had had been commenting on this in the 90s. Remember, there were regular chat rooms and message boards, and the fan community for Star Trek was fairly active at this point in time. So even back then, people were automatically assuming there was some kind of influence on the sword upon both of them, upon Kor and upon Worf. And they were like, no, no, it's just a thing. There's no external force. And they apparently were really upset about that, which I find funny because, well, I've been thinking that for years, but when I walked into this episode, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go in, Analysis mode on. I know what the creator said. I know what Rene Atcheveria says. I know what Hans says. Let's see what I think going through the episode. And having gone through the episode and paying attention at every step of the way, no, I think the sword has an external influence on them. It just makes too much sense. First of all, it's logical to say that the Herc would have trapped this in some way. And this is Star Trek, where things that can influence you to act differently is practically normal. I mean, how many episodes of TNG and Deep Space Nine have we already covered where this has been a thing in some manner or another? So the idea that it's putting out some kind of conflict beams is extremely mundane to the point of being normal. On top of that, it's the performances in specific. I was paying attention very carefully through this episode, and Worf and Kor both go from being, you know, united in purpose and friendship and working together to being slightly distrustful of each other to immediately wanting to attack and kill each other. It's it's three steps. We're fine, eh, we're enemies. That's a little bit too much for me. I think that, again, a lot of that boils down to the performances of the actors and the pace of the episode itself. Perhaps if the episode had been longer and the the drift had been more gradual, maybe that would have worked a little bit differently. But they act almost completely out of character by the time they actually get a hold of the damn thing. There's even this bit—so I'm looking at my notes here. They're like, hey, look, you know, we— we found nothing, and Kor laments the loss of what would have been the last great adventure for him. But then Worf is like, Oh my god, look! And then Worf allows Kor to take it first. You deserve this honor. And then Worf takes it, and he's like, Oh, this is great. And then he hands it back to Kor. There's a clear fellowship and bond still there. Then they have to fight Tyrell. Now, Tyrell, you remember him? That little twerp. <laughs> I'm sorry. We just covered Little Green Men, right? You remember how in Little Green Men, Cork was guilty of vampire ego syndrome? I'm not going to repeat my, my description of that. I talked about it last episode. It's on my website. Terrell is clearly another victim of vampire ego syndrome here. I will have the sword, and then I will rule the Empire on high as Sultan! And yet, no. <laughs> I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to bring back the sword, and people will kill you for it, which is probably what would have happened anyways, especially if this external force really is on the sword, As posited. (laughs) Although, it's worth noting the sword has no external force when it shows up in STO, but let's not get into that. So, they defeat Kor, or excuse me, they defeat Tyrell, they get away, and then Kor is like, What the hell's wrong with you? Like, almost immediately... This is the next scene, I remind you. They start yelling at each other and blaming each other for this entire situation. You should not have spared him. You are not a true Klingon. Maybe you don't deserve the sword. Oh, well, maybe you're just an old drunken fool who, who is the reason this was found out, and maybe you don't deserve the sword. Just bam, scene to scene like that. No, I'm sorry. That's... that's no. <laughs> People don't just suddenly shift that hard and fast. Keeping in mind, by the way, that the second-to-last scene in the episode is Worf and Kor quite literally trying to kill each other, strangle each other. Dax stuns them both. And then the very next scene is them amicably and together, working together like they always did, beaming the thing off. You see my problem here? It's just such a immediate on all... I can't even stand. There we go. It's an immediate and sudden 180. Just... You know... I I don't buy it. I'm sorry. As ever, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and hear what you think about this one, because this is probably one of the most argued elements of this episode. Now, of course, don't mistake me. I like this episode. In fact, to be perfectly blunt, until I heard about this whole controversy about, oh, the sword isn't supposed to be an external influence, I thought this was a great episode. It's so wonderfully, deliciously ironic, isn't it? These two Klingon legends, because let's be honest, by this point, Worf is a legend. These two Klingon legends and Dax, who is also a trill with a well-established career. So these three legends go and find this great sword that was taken from them by their worst enemy. And it was always a trap. It was designed to ruin anyone who catches it. It would also help to explain why it only really affects Worf and Kor. Dax doesn't seem that particularly influenced by it. She's just irritable, probably because she couldn't sleep and discomfort and lack of food and all that fun stuff. But the two Klingons literally go to the point of trying to kill each other. Now, of course, the intended reason, as we know, is because only Klingons would care about this. But I like to think that, again, going back to that narrative irony thing, it's because this was a specific anti-Klingon trap. We put this thing here, and any Klingons who find it... (laughs) They even make them work for it. Which just makes the trap all the more delicious. And then, of course, the idea that they have to get rid of the sword. Well, that makes sense. They can't deal with this. They can't let this get back... This would rip the Klingon Empire apart. And again, you can't tell me the Herc didn't intend that. Anyways, so... You know, they talk about who should hold the sword, and I have a bunch of notes here about some of the specifics, you know. uh, Worf hating Kor, Kor hates Worf. There's there's this bit where Kor starts to regale them with the tale of the random rat that they count and ate, and Worf says, that is not how the tale went. And Kor says, oh, well, you know, they'd hope they exaggerate the story, or otherwise, when I get to your verse, it'll be, and then Worf came along. Once again, not only is that actively not true, since I remind you they wouldn't have even found the sword without Worf's specific influence on this mission and his his expertise, but also, once again, that's not very core. He's cool with sharing the glory. He's cool with being part of the Grand Adventurous Party, right? We've already established that. Anyways... So then there's this great scene where Kor speaks how he should hold the sword. Not Gowron, that pathetic, that pathetic politician. And not Kalos who's just a clone. But no, a true Klingon like me. I should bring glory to the Empire. So now he's got vampire ego syndrome. And then Worf Worf's is more interesting, because Worf stems entirely from his phrase, I had a vision, and I knew my life was with purpose. Now, this is actually a really interesting scene for me, both from the intent of the writers, or or some of the creators, I should say, and with the way it's actually presented. Because both ways, what we see is Worf desperate to make his life meaningful. Now, Worf has accomplished great things by this point in history. As I said, he is already a legend in many ways. But... The truth of the matter is Worf is still going through some crap, came very close to resigning his commission, and is now once again kicked out of the Klingon Empire, with the House of Moog once again being disgraced and stripped from power. Now, Worf... How do I phrase this? I'm going to segue here. Hear me out, please. One of the things that bothered me when Earthbound was not a big seller in the United States was the fact that it was a great game, which a lot of effort and love put into the localization. Specifically the localization, obviously it was a great game in Japan, but even the United States version, which is significantly different, was a, was a very well-polished and well-crafted machine, and it didn't sell well. Now, you might say, well, it doesn't have to sell well. And you're right, it doesn't. It is still a phenomenal game. Many people have since discovered it and and now enjoy this wonderful game. But what I mean by that is picture the people who worked on that. Picture the people who poured their heart and soul into something, who did something that they believed was right, that they believed was honorable. Now, I know you're saying, well, you're putting too much into it. It was just localizing a game. But you're you're not understanding me. The game itself wasn't really the critical part. The people who worked on making Earthbound localized here in the States did a good job. They didn't have to. They weren't being paid to. There was no external force trying to coerce them or convince them or manipulate them into doing good work. They just wanted to do good work because that was right. It was the honorable, internal honor, real honorable thing to do. You can probably already see how I'm tying this in. But it was a flop. And there's just something discouraging about doing the right thing and seeing it as a failure. So for someone like Worf, with such a strong belief in infrastructure, in honor, in faith, in doing the right thing, he did what he believed firmly to be the right thing back in way of the warrior. And his reward for that was to be in disgrace. And so you could see how someone like Worf would think, oh no, it all makes sense now. I did do the right thing, and now this is why. This will make it all worthwhile. This will mean it wasn't meaningless. This will mean it was with purpose. I suffered and I lost, but it's okay because I stayed true to what I believed was right. I retained my honor, and in so doing, now I will have the sword, and I will bring it back, and I will lead our people. And thus you could see how his ideals and faith and romanticism can be twisted by the trap of the Hurt. Um, <laughs> it's a great scene, and Dorn really sells it very well. It was nice. By the way, this is another LeVar Burton directors, and once again, you can tell the man really works well, and you can tell he pulls a great performance out of Michael Dorn. Um, I have the really weird feeling that a lot of the directors who've been working with Dorn prior now don't really know how to pull a performance out of him. I could be wrong about that. Like, obviously he does fine from this point on. But I feel like this is the first episode where Worf really feels like Worf, even including Way of the Warrior. So, then there's the bit about the ledge. Now that's interesting because the episode makes it very clear, well, there was a ledge, it wasn't enough. Even Dax calls him out on that. That was just going to get him killed. And Worf's only defense is, so? I didn't push him off. If he fell, well, that's the end of him. He was willing to take the sword with him. This is officially the moment that I don't buy that that's just Worf without external influence. I might be able to buy Kor. Maybe. But Worf, who I just finished talking about the whole honorable thing, who has a very strong sense of internal honor and real honor and doing the right thing, who has a tremendous sense of duty and responsibility and commitment, you can't tell me Worf was just totally cool with the things that he tried to do in this episode. No, I don't buy it. At best, that shows that the writers and creators didn't understand the character. And at worst, they were literally wrong. And this was a trap, as I've been positing this whole time. <sighs> so, they rest up for the night. Neither side willing to to let the other, of of course. And then Tyrell and his forces show back up. Which is funny, because they really aren't such a chronic in this thing. It's like, hey, we're the bad guys! No, you're not. <laughs> you, you are not the obstacle guys. You're, you're here to fill the time. So they show back up. And they defeat the hell out of them. And immediately, the second they finish defeating the other forces, Worf and Kor descend upon each other. And literally try to kill each other, like I just mentioned. Yeah. So then Dax shoots them both, gets them a hell away, and they beam the sword off into space. The end, basically. They'll probably never find that thing again. Except in STO, where it's used against the Iconians. But that's off-topic. As ever, I, I, I state my statements as fact because I cannot buy that this is that there is no external force here I just can't it might not even be the sword itself. A theory I've heard before is that the facility had this whole anti- Klingon beam going on so that as long as they were nearby, they were still being influenced by it once they get out to space, they're fur, far enough away and now they're kind of okay right that might help explain things a little bit. As ever, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, on this apparently controversial episode. I still enjoyed it, don't mistake me. It was nice to see Worf being Worf, and it was great seeing Kor back in action. and It was nice seeing Dax being awesome. So there's a lot of good stuff here. Hope you guys enjoyed. I'll see you next time.